For me, prayer is instant. It's a gut-level response to uh, a need or maybe a call in my heart. It'll be audible sometimes. Sometimes I just know that God is hearing me on a a heart level, a gut level. Uh, Sometimes words aren't even uttered. And I leave it in his hands and I think, that's great. Prayer for me is never about language or efficiency or being uh, verbose. I don't go to flowery words. I don't uh, try to frame the prayer beforehand or write it out. I try to approach God with the need as I see it. He's seeing it. And uh, I don't feel prayer is about results. I feel prayer is about bringing it to God and trusting Him for the results. Uh, It's enough to know that He hears. The hardest time to pray is when your hands are dirty and you got mud all over your face and you come to God and you think He doesn't want to see you and you think He doesn't want to hear from you. But He welcomes you with open arms. So the hardest times to pray end up sometimes being the most fruitful and humbling. Sometimes life reduces you to a pressure point where prayer is the only thing that you can do. And uh, at some point you have to pray. And uh, prayer is an exercise. And prayer gets easier with, uh, with use. Just to utter the things that are on your mind and heart quietly in a closet, in your car, wherever, but uh, speak them out. We are on a sermon series on prayer. This is our third week into this sermon series entitled, He Knows Your Name. So I begin this time with a question, and the question is this. Where do you turn? Where do you turn when life hurts? Where do you go? Who do you turn to when your life is a mess and is in shambles? Where do you go when your financials, when your finances are a mess? And on the outside, it looks like everything is fine, but the reality is that you know that you are on the verge of financial ruin. Where do you turn? Parents, where do you go when the self-centeredness of your teenager is causing discord in your house and you can't, for the life of you, figure out why they think the world revolves around them? Where do you go? Spouses, who do you turn to when your husband or wife is unwilling to reconcile? Where do you go when you get bad news? Who do you turn to when your health is failing? We are in this sermon series on prayer. And friends, today I am excited to be here because I love to pray. And I love to talk about prayer. Because as Ken said in that video, prayer is simple. It's just coming to God with a need. Now, I grew up 
uh, in various church traditions. I, I think I've talked about this before, but, but we were kind of like church hoppers for a very long time. Uh, and more specifically, we were denomination hoppers. It's one thing to be church hoppers. It's another thing to hop through denominations, okay? So we started off Southern Baptists, and then we became Black Baptists. Now, for those of you who don't know, there is a big difference between the two, okay? Then, in my middle school years, we were Pentecostal. And we weren't just Pentecostal. We were Church of God in Christ. And to make things a little bit more confusing, we were Jamaican Pentecostal. (laughs) And then we went back to being Southern Baptists. And then we went to United Methodists. And then I think my mom just said, forget about it. We're just going to be non-denominational. And that was kind of the end of my church hopping. But all of those different denominations informed the way that I view prayer. They have impacted the way that I think about prayer. And I think for many of us, the churches we have grown up in or the expectations we place on ourselves forms the idea of what prayer should look like, should sound like, should feel like, right? For me, the most formative time in my life was during my middle school years when we were in that Jamaican Pentecostal swing. And I, I often thought to myself, I can't pray because I can't pray like them. Their prayers were like exegetical scripture, like exegetical sermons, you know what I mean? Like they would, someone would get up and pray and they would pray a sermon with an introduction on who God is an exegetical survey of, of, of what God has done, and then they would close with the benediction. And so for me, I thought, I can't pray because I don't pray like them. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show a video clip to kind of give you a more realistic portrayal of what I mean in terms of what prayer, I thought prayer looked like. Now, I'm just going to set this up before we play it, okay? I know for us, Okay, maybe not us. For Norwegians, those of you who are Norwegian and Scandinavian, this this is going to be a stretch for you all, okay? So I'm saying that ahead of time. This is going to be a stretch. But for me, this is like right up my alley. This is what prayer looked like. Now, in the clip, this is actually from a play, and the play is about these couples who come together And they're on this couple retreat. And it's two separate couples. And uh, on the retreat with them is a deacon of their church. Now, the deacon of the church also happens to be the father of one of the the women in the couple group. And so they're sitting down at lunch. And they ask the deacon, Curtis Payne, or Poppy is what his daughter calls calls him, to pray. Let's take a look at this. Yes, 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 yes. I need every head bowed. <laughs> the devil thought he had me. Ah, but a <laughs> Father God, Lord Jesus, the creator of heaven and the earth, we come before you right now. Somebody called you a burning bear. Somebody called you a heavy load tear. Somebody called you a wheel in the middle of a wheel. But I'd like to call you the creator of all things right now. 
for you put a leaf on a limb and a limb on a branch and a branch on a tree and the tree on some roots and the roots in the dirt and the dirt in a hole and the hole in the ground and the green grass grew all around and around the green grass grew all around you now I want to thank y'all for chicken thank God for chicken didn't have to do it but it did gave me two legs two thighs two breakfast two wings Hot sauce on him. I can hear that chicken tonight, Lord. As he offer up a sacrifice of praise. I believe I can fry. Grab a skill and touch the fire. Amen. Amen already. Amen. Thank you, Poppy. That was beautiful. I love that. Whenever I'm feeling down, I literally go on YouTube and I watch that over and over and over and over again. It's great, right? That's what I mean when I say prayers is like this, this sermon. He started off with the introduction of who God is and he goes into God putting a leaf on a limb and a limb and a branch and a branch on a tree and a tree and a hole and a hole on some roots and the roots in the dirt and the hole in the ground, right? And then he thanks God for chicken. That, that is great. <laughs> I thank God for chicken often as well. But what I love about that clip is the fact that there are other people at the table and everyone else at the table has the ability to pray to God. And yet they defer to the person who's the deacon. Isn't that something? They defer to the person who's the professional prayer. And I think oftentimes we do the very same thing. That prayer is something that devout Christians do. It's something that the staff does, and it's something that pastors do, but it's something that we wrestle with because we have this expectation of what prayer really is. And at the heart of this sermon series, I believe that John Crosby is trying to get us to see that prayer is not for the professionals, and that we need to deprofessionalize prayer in the church. I love what Ken said in the very beginning of that clip. He said that prayer is not about flowery words, right? It's not about how efficient you are. It's not about how verbose you are. It is simply coming to God with a need. It is something that all of us, you and I, can do. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 62. Oh, friends, I love me some Psalms 62. I am already an Old Testament junkie. The Psalms are like something that I have memorized and have spent a lot of time growing up. My mom used to always make us memorize scripture, and the Psalms were the things that she would make us memorize. But Psalm 62 speaks to me in a way that some of the other Psalms don't. And what I love about Psalm 62 is that the psalmist is not coming to God with this facade that everything is fine. The psalmist doesn't come to God all polished, manicured. The psalmist comes to God broken and hurting and vulnerable, going to the one person he knows can be his refuge. 
So what we're going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And when we get to verse 8, I'm going to have us all read together. So beginning in verse 1, truly my soul waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Oh, my soul. Wait silently for God alone. For my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Let's read this together. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Let's say that last part again. God is a refuge for us. The Psalms is here is, is undergoing what he feels like is persecution. The people that he loved and thought loved him are now consulting to attack him. They're, they're spreading lies about him. It reminds me of this song that my grandma's church used to sing, a Southern Baptist church used to sing, and it goes a little something like, I've been lied on, mistreated talked about and cheated. And that song comes from this passage. That the psalmist thought that the people he loved had his best interests in mind, and yet they are consulting about him to pull him down from his high place. Now, we, there's a lot of debate about whether or not this is King David. And if it is, in fact, King David, I think that we can realize why he would feel like this. Remember with me about King David and his jacked up family. They had some serious issues in his family. And King David's family, his son Absalom, wanted to kill him. His own son, flesh of his flesh, blood of his blood, consulted with other people and pursued David to take his life. The psalmist is in utter despair. The people that he loved have forsaken him. They are persecuting him. They have mistreated him. They lie about him and they consult against him. Now, I know that in Minnesota, that Minnesota niceness thing, it really is true, right? Like we really are as nice as people think we are. We, we don't do this at all. We don't smile at people and then in turn are like, they need to stay away. We, we don't do that at all. Ladies, I know for a fact that we don't actually gossip about our friends. Never, right? We don't like hang out with friends and then go home and tell our husband, oh my gosh, he has so many issues. We, we don't do that at all. This is only something that happens in the text. This is only something that happens in the Bible. What I love about this Psalms is that I think that this is the finest testimony of the true spirit of prayer. That the psalmist is going through a tough time and he can turn to God and say, God, I am hurting and I am in pain, but truly my soul is still only 
in you. So let's talk about what it means for God to be our refuge. I had you repeat that verse, verse eight, trust in the Lord at all times, you people. Pour out your heart to him because God is a refuge for us. What does that mean? What does it look like for God to be a refuge for us? I think recently in the last two or three weeks, we've talked a lot about refuge, or at least we have thought about it, especially in light of the Syrian conflict and when the images of that young boy who washed up on the shore crashed the internet. We began to think about what does it actually mean for refugees to find refuge? What does it mean for people who are in danger to find safety? Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Twin Cities is home to a lot of refugee groups. We have Hmong and Karen, we have Burmese, we have people from Somalia as well as Liberians. And I'm married to Liberians, so I know this, but Minnesota is home to the largest population of Liberians outside of the country of Liberia. When the vice president of Liberia came to the United States, his first stop was Minnesota. And the thing that strikes me about this, about the fact that we are home to refugees, is that we are in a place where we are constantly in conversation about what does it look like for people to find refuge. When in Liberia, the dictator, Charles Taylor, took over power in the 80s, stories go that he chopped off the heads of all the government officials and forced kids to play soccer with the decapitated heads. If you look online and do some research, you will see that over two million Somalis have been displaced since the early 90s, two million people. What does it mean for people to find refuge? What does it mean for them to be safe? And what does it mean for us? What does it look like for you and I to find refuge when our lives are crazy and chaotic and hectic? When we can't seem to reconcile the way we desire things to be with the way that they are, who do we turn to? God is a refuge for us. And I thank God that God is a refuge that never forsakes us, that never leaves us. And God is a refuge that will never, ever say to us, why don't you just go back to where you came from? God is a refuge for us. So let's talk about a refuge. Let's, let's look at the Hebrew. Let's do a little investigation of what it means to be a refuge. What, what does that mean scripturally? The first is that a refuge is a place of safety. And a refuge is only as safe as it is strong. So the Bible talks over and over and over again about how God is a stronghold, God is a fortress. And God is safe because he is so strong. And so I wanna show a picture up here above. And I love this picture. Uh, These on the top of this are ancient ruins. And on top of this plateau would have been in the ancient Near East, a castle. And for people in the ancient Near East, they would build up these castles, these fortresses, up upon plateaus like this because the idea was is that the plateau would guard them from their enemies. It was strong. There was no C4 in ancient Near East times. There was no dynamite. 
There was no way to knock this down. There was no way to penetrate it. So the idea was, was that if castles would sit upon this, then it would be a stronghold in which people could be safe. When enemies would line up around it, the people inside were safe. God is a refuge because he is safe. God is a stronghold. God is a fortress. And he is unbreakable and he is impenetrable. The second thing is simple, that God is a place of supply. How many of you remember the tornado that hit North Minneapolis in 2011? Hands? Anybody remember this? So my husband and I, my family, we literally live like four blocks away from where the tornado did most of its damage. And I never will forget the sirens go off and I, Cecil runs in to get our then one-year-old son out, off from the main floor in his room. And I run upstairs to get my three-month-old baby. And we go running down into our basement. And I think to myself, oh God, if this tornado knocks down our house, we were completely unprepared. Now, I was a mom of a three-month-old. And my first thought was, I have no diapers, Jesus. Give me some time. I got to go get some diapers. I had no diapers. But beyond that, I had, there was no water, there was no food, there were no candles, there were no flashlights, we had no batteries, we had no form of communication. We were completely unprepared for the tornado. A refuge is worthless unless it is able to supply you with everything that you need while you are staying in it. God is a refuge for us because God can supply everything you need while you are going through whatever it is you are going through. He has everything you need. If you need love, he has an abundance of it. If you need grace, he has an abundance of it. If you need forgiveness, it is already there. My favorite scripture passage, I say that all the time, every scripture passage is my favorite. Let's just... It is. It's true. It's in Philippians, and it's Philippians 4.19, and it says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. Everything you need is in God. The third thing about a refuge is that a refuge is a place that is reliable. Where do we go when a tornado, the tornado sirens go off? Where, Where do you run to? No one really stays upstairs in their room, do they? Why not? It's not a trick question I'm really asking. Right? Because when a tornado comes, if the tornado comes through your house, it's just going to knock that, that top floor off, isn't it? We go to a basement because we know that that is the place in our house that cannot be picked up by the tornado. When everything in our life is going crazy, when the trees are flying, the cars have been picked up by the wind, when our house has turned into nothing but debris, we know that there is one place that is immovable, and that is our basement. God is like that. God is reliable precisely because he cannot be moved when everything in our life is going crazy. He's reliable because he's not us. He's reliable because he's not broken, he's not sinful, he's not unfaithful. I love Psalm 62, and I love it for this reason. Again, I love, love, love scripture. How many times can I say that in a sermon? I love scripture. And I love Psalm 62 because Psalm 62 does a great job 
of contrasting the brokenness and fallenness of man with the faithfulness of God. God is strong where man is weak. God is reliable when men are undependable. God never turns his back on us the way that people do. God is incorruptible where man stumbles. Where we trust in riches and we trust in our own ability, God is not like us. God is all-powerful. I love that contrast in the Psalms where he says men of high degree, people of power, and he's talking about all of us in a sense where we think that we control our lives, we think that we can control and manipulate and do things that benefit us, but the reality is that there is only one person in all of creation that is all-powerful, and that is God. God is reliable because he is not man. Back in the Pentecostal circles, they used to always say, God is not like man that he should lie. God is not like, not like son of man that he shall change his mind. He will not forsake us. God is our refuge. And so this morning, I want you to think about, do you actually go to him? Do you turn to God when life hurts? So you may be saying for those activators and maybe controllers in the room, you may be saying, all right, D, okay, God is a refuge. What does it actually look like then? What what does this actually mean practically and tangibly? What does it mean for God to be a refuge for my life? I have two things, and it comes right out of verse 8. This is why I had you read it aloud. The first is that if God is going to be a refuge in your life, you have to first trust in God. And trusting of God Define simply means to depend upon God's character. We just talked about the difference between God and man, and that God is trustworthy. Now, I think in my life, and maybe some of you are like this, that I say all the time that I trust in God. On the one hand, I go, yep, got it. I trust in God. But on the other hand, if I am honest, I am doing everything that I can to control the situation to influence the situation so that it actually turns out the way that I want to talk to turn out. I say, oh God, I need you in this relationship. I need you to reconcile it. It is messy. I am hurting, but I love this person and I want to mend the brokenness. But on the other hand, I am doing everything that I can to control the person, control the conversation, control what they do, manipulate them so that I can get out of the relationship precisely what I want. I know I'm the only person that does this. I I know I'm the only person that says I trust in God with the one hand, but on the other hand, I I am kind of trusting in my own abilities. And what I have come to realize is there's three big reasons, I think, why we are so unwilling to let go of our control. The first is that many of us really want to know if God really is trustworthy. We struggle with that. Is God really trustworthy? The second... It's fear. We are afraid. We have been controlling our lives, our entire lives, and now this idea of I have to actually let go of control, our society pushes us to trust in our own ability. Our culture is all about self, 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 and now you're actually telling me I have to let go a little bit of that control. It's fear. We are afraid. And the third, I think, is that many of us struggle with shame and guilt. But D, if you only knew how I really am, if you only knew what I did in my past, if you only knew 
how broken and how much I am hurting. I can't trust in God because ah, I'm too ashamed. And I think, from my experience, that we can't rely on how we feel when it comes to God. When it comes to this idea of trusting in God, it is not about our emotions. We rely too heavily on how I feel. And if I am honest with you guys, I don't feel God every day. I don't know about you. Maybe someone in here feels God every day. And if you do, please email me so we can have a conversation. I'd love to figure out how to do that. I don't, I don't feel him every day. I don't, I don't feel like God is always working on, by my, on my behalf. I don't, I don't feel like he's really working in the relationships I want him to work in. We rely too heavily on how we feel. If we want to know whether or not God is trustworthy, we have to go to Scripture. We have to go to the foundation upon which we stand, and that is the Word of God that is living and true. And the Word of God says to us, I'm going to paraphrase it, that while we were yet sinning, God in His love did the only thing that God could possibly do. He put himself on the cross. Amen, somebody. That's the good news. The Bible says we were enemies with God, enemies with God. And God in his love still chose to get up on a cross so that we could be forgiven for past, for present, and for future. That is the good news. God is reliable because he is not like us. God is always loving. He is always faithful. He is always caring. And I love in 1 John when it talks about God and it says that most of us would die for people that we love, right? Most of us would sacrifice for people that we love. Few of us would do it for people we just just like. But how many of us really would sacrifice for people that we hate, that we would sacrifice for people who are our enemies, that we would sacrifice for people who are always in opposition to us. God has proven his character in doing the very thing that so many of us would never do. It is time to let go of the control and truly trust in God. Some of you, it is time for you just to let it go. Let it go. And let God do what only God can do. For those of you who struggle with shame and guilt, I have a scripture verse that I think you need to tattoo it in your memory. And this is a reminder for all of us. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's already covered. It's already been taken care of, past, present, and future. No matter what you do and how your life goes, it is already covered. God is trustworthy. Will you trust him? And will you let go? The second thing. The second thing in what does it look like for God to be a refuge for us is to pour out your soul, pour out your heart to him. That's what verse 8 says. It says, trust in him at all times, you people, and pour out your heart to him. Now, I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. I love them to pieces. 
They're a little messy and a little chaotic, but I love them to pieces. And one of the things that I have noticed is that in their room, we have a really big toy box. It's about yay high. And the idea for the big toy box is that only the big toys go in the big toy box. I say this so much that I could just go through my whole spiel to my kids. Okay, Levi and Josiah, listen to mommy. The big toys go into the, the big toy box, and the little toys go into the compartments. That's why they're there. And my kids, they never listen. They put all of their toys into the big toy box. So when they're playing and they need a toy, Levi gets one side and Josiah gets the other, and they literally pour the whole thing on the floor. The toy could be the second one from the top, and they will still pour the whole thing all over the floor. It drives me nuts. But this idea of pouring out is precisely that image that my kids have. It's exactly what my kids do. The, the, the idea in the Hebrew is that you would pour out a cup of water, that you would turn it all the way over. This is what God is calling us to do. This is what the Psalms is, is exhorting us to do, that we would trust in God and we would pour it all out, tell him everything. One thing that I realized in that tornado was that my basement is worthless unless my family and I went down into it, right? It doesn't actually work if we don't go there. You have to actually go to God. You actually have to go into the refuge. He's not going to force you to do it. God is a gentleman. He's not going to force you. But the refuge won't work unless you go to him, unless you pour out your heart before him. One of my favorite quotes is by Henry Nouwen. I love this thing. I, I read this to myself all the time. And it says, dear God, I am so afraid to open up my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and to discover that I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. This is an example of pouring out your heart to God. Last week, John talked a little bit about Martin Luther. And for those of you who know about Martin Luther, know that he has struggled with severe depression his entire life. This great man of faith, this reformer who transformed faith, struggled with not only depression, but this idea of sin. And he wrestled with it. One of my favorite quotes from him, it's 10 words. And I say this to myself over and over and over again. And it's simple. Here I stand. I can do no other. Help me. This is what it looks like to pour out your hearts before God. If God is to be a refuge for us, we must trust in him and let go of our ability to control the situation. And we must also pour out our hearts. So I end this time the very way that I began it by asking you, who do you turn to when your life hurts? Who do you turn to when your life is a mess? Who do you turn to when things get complicated? Where do you turn? 
You may or may not have noticed that there are cards at the end of your aisle. If you haven't, I'm going to say now to go ahead and pass these down. Last week, we had an opportunity to write on cards one thing that I'm thankful for and the other that I'm asking God for forgiveness for, and we got an opportunity to paste it, to pin them on the letters. You may have also noticed that there are cards all around the altar today. I was struck last week when I was doing a devotional on 2 Kings. And in 2 Kings, it talked about King Hezekiah. Now, King Hezekiah had received a threatening letter from one of his enemies, a Syrian king, who told King Hezekiah that they were coming to destroy the Israelite people. And King Hezekiah, he didn't pray words, he didn't say anything lengthy. He took the letter, he picked it up, and he put it on the altar before the Lord. This morning, I am asking us to write down on these cards something that you are trusting in God for. Now, friends, let me just issue a challenge. It is so easy to write something superficial on a card. But I want to challenge you to do as my kids would do. Pour it all out. Spread it all across the floor and put it on that card. And when you are ready, I'm going to ask that you would get up take your card and you would lay it all across the steps. And at the end of that, I will pray for us.